0: in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In this morning's reading from John's first epistle, he talks a great deal about love. In fact, there are 27 instances of the word love in the 15 verses that we read today. And just as a heads up, after I preached at the 9 a.m. service, uh, the acolyte sitting next to me told me that I said love 111 times in my sermon, so (laughs) buckle up. John writes about both God's love and about our own call to love. And it's in this passage that we twice heard the phrase that we use all the time to summarize God's entire character. God is love. Now, the tricky thing about love is that despite the fact that we use the word all the time, there's a pretty broad spectrum of what we mean when we say it. We sometimes use it quickly and easily, I love Star Wars, I love that outfit, I love this song. Sometimes we use it sparingly and with incredibly delicate hands. Think of that moment in any dating relationship when the first I love you is said. You love him, but are you in love with him? Or I think of when my son a few weeks ago said goodbye to his friends as I picked him up from school and he stepped into the car forgetting to say goodbye to them, so he leaned out and said, see you tomorrow, I love you. It was adorable and it wasn't out of place then And for some reason, there will be a year in which that will feel inappropriate, in which his elementary school friends will hear that and balk instead of receiving it. I think about how often Jesus' words of telling us to speak the truth in love end up being abused into meaning, every time I say something that is true, it is by definition loving. Think about how protesters standing outside of military funerals with signs declaring God's hatred justify their actions by saying to be silent would be unloving. I'm saying something true, it must be loving. To be honest, I don't think we always know what we mean when we say love. It's nebulous and I think often defined more by pop music than by anything else. And that's because we project all kinds of things onto, or excuse me, because of that, we project all kinds of things onto God when we read that he is love. Because we're nebulous in our definition, we can mean any number of things. Is he the substance of the way I feel when I look into my wife's eyes? Is he the butterflies felt in the stomach of a middle schooler experiencing her first crush? Does he offer blanket affirmation of all the warm feelings we feel towards anyone at any time? Or well, as the lyricist and poet Hadaway asked us 25 years ago, what is love? If only he had known that the Apostle John gave us an answer, not a concrete definition, but an example. How do we know love? It's manifest in this. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love isn't that we love God, but that he loved us. The first step in trying to understand love, or at least the kind of love that the Bible is exhorting us to, is not to start from our feelings and wonder how is it that God feels them, but to take what God has done for us and use that as the starting point for how we might live. All the uses of love I said earlier, loving music, loving, I mean, these are all fine uses of the word love. I'm not interested in in something suddenly creating rules for only saying love when we're talking about it in this sense. But it's pretty important that we understand what we mean when we say God is love and not allow our common usage of the word to creep into our theological statements. So love is self-sacrificial. It's caring for the other person first. It's emptying and vulnerable. If the sending of Jesus is our picture of love, then love looks like offering yourself for the sake of the other without the requirement of a down payment for services rendered. God chooses to act first, not just when we deserve it, but specifically when we don't. As John writes, we love because he first loved us. In terms of the manner in which we love others, this means being entirely other-focused. Henry Nouwen, in his book Reaching Out, talks about being hospitable and caring for others like this. Really honest receptivity means inviting the stranger into our our world on his or her terms, not on ours. And later, we can only perceive the stranger as an enemy as long as we have something to defend. But when we say, please enter, my house is your house, my joy is your joy, my sadness is your sadness, and my life is your life, we have nothing to defend since we have nothing to lose but all to give. We so often think about love or at least behave lovingly In regards to how the other person can make us feel, I think so often even our charitable work is a pursuit of that emotional high of feeling good about loving other people. And yet the picture that John is giving us of what it looks like to love is all about allowing the other person to be the focal point, to forget our feelings about the matter and care about the other person. I think you even get a glimpse of this in how Philip evangelizes to the Ethiopian eunuch in our Acts reading today. Now this is several chapters before the church formally decided that Gentiles have equal access to the gospel as Gentiles without converting to Judaism. And so Philip encounters this Gentile eunuch by law required to be excluded from the assembly. We're not entirely sure how he even got access to this scroll of Isaiah. But Philip chooses to tell this man the good news of Jesus starting exactly where this man is, in the passage he's reading, in the chariot in which he's riding, And then he baptizes him at the water he is next to. Everything about the way in which Philip shares the gospel is on the Ethiopian's terms. In the Ethiopian's context, it's responsive rather than prescriptive. And we've seen a counterexample to this in the news last week, when dispassionate and distant medical experts get to decide life and death matters for a child, truly loved and cared for by his parents, stepping even in the way between the parents' love for the child. The love from a parent is at its best self-giving, willing to take on an inconceivably significant amount of pain and suffering on behalf of someone who has yet to do anything to earn it. I think it's no wonder that scripture uses parental language, both mother and father, to describe God's love for us. That is what our call to love looks like. And it's a challenging benchmark. The stakes are high. John writes that if you say you love God but hate your brother or sister, you're a liar. If you don't love, you don't know God, for God is love. Suddenly, what was potentially this saccharine phrase we'd paint on our walls, in context, feels more like a threat. We heard it last week as well, when John posed this rhetorical question. If you have material possessions and do not have pity on someone who is in need, how can God's love possibly be in you? His suggested answer, of course, is that it can't. John's point is that love is so central to the life of the Christian that to be without it suggests that God's not actually working in your life. I once heard, or read, I can't totally remember, um, Tim Keller talking about Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, where Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And Keller said that how you treat the poor in your midst shows whether or not you've been justified by faith. In essence, you don't earn salvation by doing good things, but doing good things is the evidence of whether or not you've been saved evidence about whether or not god is working in your life now this is a very hard word and it feels like a new law thou shalt love or else and our response to it can be just like our response to any law we fake it we white knuckle it we eat our spiritual vegetables and we make ourselves love others but i don't know if you've ever tried this but it is nigh impossible to make yourself love someone (laughs) You might be able to force yourself to say a kind word through gritted teeth or keep yourself from speaking a harsh word, again, probably through gritted teeth. You can force yourself to do the right thing, but it won't be out of love. That doesn't make the effort worthless. It doesn't mean that kind gestures done reluctantly are not kind. But I wouldn't say they're acts of true love, at least not the picture of abundant love and abundant life that we get from Scripture. Clearly, the more preferable option is for the love of others to naturally and genuinely spring from our hearts. Now, I want to affirm the great work of James K.A. Smith, whose book, You Are What You Love, has really shaped my understanding of habits and things like that. And he points to that we, the fact that we often form or maybe properly reform our loves through repetition and habit. We do teach our hearts to love the right things by doing the right things. It's why we have a liturgy. So maybe part of how we love others is by doing the loving things and allowing our hearts to catch up. I don't want to throw that out of the possibility. But I think there's some encouragement from the text this morning that there is the potential for work to be done in our hearts without beating them into submission first, as it were. John writes, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. And he explains that those who confess Jesus is the Son of God are abiding in God. But the confession here isn't just a verbal declaration that then changes our lives, like some sort of magic incantation, that if you just say out loud, Jesus is the Son of God, suddenly God is going to love others through you. The confession here flows from the Spirit dwelling in us. Think about how Paul says that no one confesses Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. He's, again, not talking about those words spoken out loud. He's talking about a true confession of a life lived for God. And John is the same man who recorded Jesus giving these instructions to his disciples. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. It is Jesus himself that is the source of the virtue and love that grows within us. The love of God is generative. Father Martin often quotes this phrase from Martin Luther, even in his sermon last week, but it's so good it's worth bringing up again. The love of God does not find but creates that which is self-pleasing to it. The love of God doesn't find but creates that which is pleasing. The source of love in our lives is no less than Jesus himself. It is God who makes that love well up inside of us. When you're united to Christ in faith and baptism, you have set yourself up to be an abiding place, a dwelling place, a tabernacle for God who then dwells in you and works in your life gradually, sometimes, sometimes quickly, But doing the work nonetheless if the words in john's epistle start to feel like a threat you have to prove that god is really working in your life by loving others you're starting in the wrong place going in the wrong direction john says that love casts out fear fear of judgment the goal isn't to act out of terror and love other people but to be so influenced and fed by the love of god that you end up loving others even people that you shouldn't love by all reasonable expectation If loving is the evidence of God's spirit alive in you, if it's the evidence of God pouring his love into you and that love overflowing to those around you, then the way we start to live out that self-giving love is to drink more deeply of the spirit, to run to Jesus, to abide in the vine, to receive healing from him. Abide in me, he says. The only way we know real love is from God. And so the only way that we love is by being loved by him, receiving from him. Again, Jesus' own words about cutting off branches and tossing them into the fire sounds like a threat. But the way that a branch becomes more connected to the vine isn't to go become more branchy on its own and then come back to the vine and ask to be grafted in. You get grafted in and then you draw from the vine. That's the kind of love that casts out fear. The fear that we might feel when we don't measure up to our mandate to love. And it is a mandate. And when we feel like we don't truly love others, that our love is too imperfect and too insufficient, God keeps on pouring out his love so recklessly and lavishly, and then once we've received from him, we can freely share that love with others. We can receive from him in prayer, in reading scripture. We receive from him when we gather with others and hear about the love of God. Let's not discount the fact that the body of Christ most incarnate is in the Eucharist, but also in the gathered people of God. That's how we encounter Christ. When we feel least worthy of love, we need other people to tell us that God loved us anyway. That God continues to come to us and die for us, or died for us once and for all, while we were still sinners, before we deserved it. So when we continue to be sinners, as we all do, we can expect that God will keep doing what he's always done, loving us first. If he loved us when we were sinners then, he'll continue to love us when we're sinners now. And if he poured himself out then, then it is in his character to continue to do so even as we continue to fail loving us first i believe our liturgy our sunday morning service helps us in this because every week we confess that we haven't done what we ought to have done we're not living as john and jesus have prescribed for us and every week without fail we hear a declaration of god's persistent forgiveness of absolution that's part of our service confession and forgiveness Now, Andrew, you'll say, that's just part of the script. We say it no matter what. But to sort of break the fourth wall here, Anglicans don't have any good theology outside of, well, maybe that's a good sentence on its own. Anglicans don't have good theology. That's unfair. We don't have theological treatises. The Anglican church isn't formed with a a shorter catechism. We have a catechism. It's, It's valuable to certain degrees, but the thing we have is the liturgy. And the liturgy is our truest expression of what we believe. And so the fact that every week we insist on an absolution, without the priest going around and asking everybody, did you actually mean it? I'm not sure you really confessed. I'm not sure you're actually going to change. We don't include that. We don't include a necessary one-on-one sacramental confession before you hear forgiveness because that's not how God works and that's not who we believe God is. And then every week after we hear that we are forgiven, that we are forgiven and God keeps loving us, we come to the table and receive grace every single week, persistently and without fail, True, we do need to work on loving others when we don't feel like it, because God's Holy Spirit can enable us to do that. And I do think it shapes us into loving the right way when we love when we don't feel like it. But that's an unsustainable ethic. It's an unsustainable life to be lived when all you're doing is gritting your teeth and loving others because you're running on an empty tank. The way to love others is to be filled by God, abiding in Christ, receiving way more than you deserve, And in doing so, fully understand what love actually looks like and then find ourselves loving others, loving those we wouldn't love otherwise, loving those who are our enemies, loving others that we shouldn't love by all rational means. And so I pray that we more fully abide in Christ, that all of us find ourselves drawing near to him, receiving from him that love that is way more than we deserve. And in turn, understanding that love and what it feels like to be filled by that love, we find ourselves going out and loving others naturally and from the depths of the love in our hearts with that love that God gave us first before we earned it. Amen.